Welcome to Leading for a Legacy. I'm your host, Meredith Schweitzer. In this show, we ask, what makes a cultural nonprofit leader whose staff, board, and the community you serve actually want to follow? Join me as I unpack the leadership styles of some of the most influential museum directors and cultural sector nonprofit leaders across the nation, all to try to understand what it means to lead with your legacy in mind. money, how to get it, how to cultivate donors so that they want to give you more of it, how to develop a board that's going to get you where you need to go, how to get your director to have the vision that's going to raise the money. All of these are things that nonprofits have to think about all the time. And even if you're not in the development department, it's sort of part of being in the environment of a nonprofit whether you're dealing with grant funding or projects that are funded through individual donors or through the endowment, no matter where your funding is coming from, it's definitely something that as a leader, you're thinking about all the time, even if you're pretty fiscally sound. So today we're talking to Paul Johnson and we're going to get into where money meets vision. I really enjoyed this conversation because it Originally, I thought we were really just going to focus on fundraising, but we got into this bigger conversation about how important it is to have vision and how you cultivate that vision. And I think the best part of this conversation is that we leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger. I'm bringing Paul back for another conversation. So stay tuned, listen to the end, and keep that cliffhanger in your mind, and we'll address it in the next episode. Let me give you a little introduction to Paul Johnson. He is the head of Creative Fundraising Advisors. And we're doing a little work with them at the organization where I work now. So I've gotten to know him through that process. Creative Fundraising Advisors is a full-service fundraising consulting firm. Their website says they've raised over a billion dollars in just the past five years alone. That is crazy. And Paul himself has more than three decades of experience in all kinds of institutions. I mean, both really large and kind of small nonprofits as well. Over the years, he's helped raise money for St. John's College, which we get into in this conversation. He's currently working with the School for Advanced Research, where I work. Um, He's done so many other projects, including working with the Brooklyn Museum, working with the Natural History Museum in LA, everything like from small to big. So what I like about this conversation is the perspectives he gives really apply to small nonprofits and to huge nonprofits, because I think no matter what organization you're working in, if you don't know where you're going, if you don't dream big enough to take your team somewhere new and exciting, you're really going to struggle, I think. So we get into some practical ways that you can think about vision, you can think about raising money. And I hope that this is a really useful conversation. I thought it was really fascinating. And I'm definitely finding ways to apply a lot of the ideas um, to my own work now. So Let's jump into it, and like I said, be sure to hang out until the end, uh, catch the cliffhanger, and then join us for the next episode with Paul again. Well, Paul Johnson, welcome to Leading for a Legacy. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Let's just get into it. You've really dedicated your career to helping organizations raise funds to make these like massive changes, but it seems like you've led you know, small and large teams. You've helped raise smaller kind of specific exhibit pieces. You've also like done these boundary kind of pushing large campaigns. Mm -hmm. 
I think one of the most interesting projects that piques my interest, at least, is the work that you had done on the development of the Department of the Arts of the Islamic World at the Museum mm-hmm. of Fine Arts, Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like it was like one of the very first projects of its kind in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about how that project came about and also kind of the, the lessons that you learned in that project that you still kind of carry with you. Sure. It was a great project. Just to give you some context, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the largest cultural organization in the state of Texas. To actually find a larger cultural organization, you have to go north to Chicago or east to D.C. or west to Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. So it occupies a really important place in, in Texas. And it's a massive organization. It has like a $55 million budget and an endowment of about a billion dollars, a little bit more. And, and it encompasses the museum, two house museums, an art school. So it's a it's a big, complex institution. Yeah. We raised about $40 million a year or so, and, and that was both for restricted ongoing operations and exhibition support and um, support of you know, programs and education programs and all of that. And then also restricted money for like art acquisition. And and what, what time period are we talking about here? This was like 2003, 2004. Okay. So, but there was this every, every year there was this like one tiny little like line item in our fundraising budget that was our film department every year did a Iranian film festival. And every year they wanted us to raise like $15,000 for it, like no money, you know, in the context of everything else that we were doing, but we could never raise that money. And then um, I think I was at a party or something like that. And I met this guy whose name was Mansour Tagdishi and we became friendly and, and he is Iranian and his parents were Iranian immigrants to Texas. And I said to him, you know, I I need to pick your brain about something because, you know, we do this Iranian film festival every year and we can never raise any money for it. I mean, can you help us with raising this money? And he laughed and he said, you know, what's funny about that is that there's a gigantic Iranian expat population in Houston, which I had no idea about. I said, well, that's really interesting. Why are they all in Houston? He said, well, you know, when the Ayatollah Khomeini came into power and the Shah was exiled and there was a huge exodus of basically the the wealthy elite and intellectuals from Iran. And a lot of them came to Houston because they had already worked in the oil industry. And so they came to Houston because of the oil industry in Houston. Oh, sure. That generation who came in, I think, the mid-70s, 1977, I think, but that generation had grown children who had basically grown up in Houston. He said, but I'm going to introduce you to a woman whose name is Seema Larjabardian. And Seema is sort of the linchpin to this whole community. And, you know, Seema will give you some advice on on raising this money for this film festival. So Seema and I met one day um, for lunch, and she's just a little bit younger than I am. So Seema and I had lunch, and I said, if there are all these, you know, and, and I don't know if you know much about the Iranian culture, but Iranians have this really rich culture, particularly in the arts and whatnot. It's really deep and really rich. And I said, why have people never become involved in the museum? And she said, because we don't see ourselves there. And I said, what do you mean? She said, there are no objects there that relate to our culture at all. There's there's nothing there that relates to us as a culture. So why would we engage? I mean, why would we engage with Western art? That's just not our culture. And and so we, we don't feel like we have a place there. She said, you know, if the museum were to begin to 
collect and to create programs around Islamic art, you know, I bet we could do something very significant around that. So I, I took this back to the director and I said, I had this really interesting conversation. Would you ever be interested in starting a department of Islamic art? He said, you know, I tried this with that group of people's parents. And he said, I tried it and mm -hmm. it was unsuccessful because they didn't have a cultural philanthropy. He said, but this generation probably does have a cultural philanthropy. So yeah, let's go for it. And he challenged me and he said, if you can raise, I think it was a million and a half dollars, million and a half or $2 million. He said, if you can raise $2 million from this group of people, I will have the trustees match that with $2 million and we will start a department. We'll hire a curator and we'll begin collecting objects and we'll put exhibitions on the schedule. So I put this challenge in front of Siemens. She was like, done, we're going to do this. And it's funny because I don't think the director at the time, who he's unfortunately passed since then, but I don't think he believed that we were going to do it. Seema just like activated her entire network. And the reason it changed from a Department of Islamic Art to Department of Arts of the Islamic World is that the Islamic world is actually very, very large, as you can imagine. It's the largest religion, I think, after Christi Christianity in the world. And so it, it extended from, you know, North Africa through the Middle East to Morocco or to um, Turkey. The region is very big. And so it gives you um, so much more to play with in the long term. Too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. So there was there was a, a key player in this that we needed to get to, and he was the Iranian ambassador to the United States. He had come to Houston and made a fortune in Houston and oil, and, and he was the sort of key to this. And so what we decided to do was base the entire focus on objects. And so we went literally, and it was so much fun, like around the world, seeing what objects were available that we could acquire. And we put together, I think, nine or 10 different things sort of on approval, they felt that the most important first object for them to collect was a Quran, uh, an ancient Quran. And so we actually found a Quran that was available that was um, made in, I think it was in the 15th century, um, and it was available for purchase. And so we, we assembled these nine or 10 objects. We had this big party because in Houston, everybody loves a party. You gotta um, have a party. Gotta have a party, big fundraising party. And it was the first time Ambassador Ansari walked in to the museum and he saw these nine objects and he began pointing at them. And he said, I'll pay for that, I'll pay for that, I'll pay for that. At the end of the day, he had racked up like $1.8 million in purchases. And I walked up to the director and I said, I just raised $1.8 million. And he, and he looked at me with this sort of like, he practically like blanched and he said, <laughs> go find Cornelia. And Cornelia was the chair of the board. <laughs> and I said, one moment, please. And so the two of them had this little side conversation. He said, well, you met the challenge, so let's do it. And that's how it started. And now it's a fully fledged department that has become increasingly important, particularly in the American South, particularly in Houston, uh, that they can actually tell their stories through objects and through art and through a deeper understanding of this culture. You know, I think that in the current discourse, it's become increasingly important that this department exists, particularly in Texas and in Houston. So that was that was a really fun project. It was great to look at. You know, so to, a couple of things are coming to mind for me when you're talking about this. One is, um, you know, having that seed of a vision and letting it really grow is really interesting to me. But the other thing is this idea that you need 
that catalyst person. You need that springboard person. So it seems like having Seema give you the almost give you the green light or just sort of say yes, like let's do this together. That that's the that there's a tipping point thing that happens um, in your experience. How much do you do organizations need that person and that moment to really make a bigger project like this successful? I mean, I would say for a project like this, it's really important. And this is particularly true when you're working with communities that are on our own. You know, so it's one thing for me, a middle-aged white guy, to come in and say, I want to raise money for this project. It's quite another thing. If there's somebody who is a member of that community who's adopted this project and can work in partnership, that's really important. And it's become increasingly important in today's environment that that we we partner with people from those communities who take on this project rather than imposing our own assumptions and because we don't know i mean it's very funny because you know there was a lot of work and planning that went into starting that project in houston but we always used to laugh that meetings were always sort of mid-afternoon and they were at someone's house and they involved a lot of tea and a lot of like little middle eastern snacks and so we'd sit around literally, and I'm not kidding, in these beautiful lush houses, but like on pillows, you know, drinking tea and eating out of these beautiful brass bowls of these incredible Middle Eastern snacks. But that was all part of the thing. They needed to get to know us, you know, right. and, and we needed to meet them where they were. And it was fabulous because of that. It was it was um, it was fun. And, you know, the other amazing thing was we were able to pull together Iranians, Pakistanis, Afghanis, Egyptians, Lebanese. We were able to pull together all of these communities. It was funny because at the gala that I told you about where they bought all these objects, there was actually one table of Afghanis and all the women came in full burqas. And then the Iranians who don't have those restrictions came in like full on gala gowns. (laughs) Ball gowns. (laughs) Ball gowns. It was really, it was really funny. You know what? I'm also struck by like the director saying, sure, Paul, like, good luck with that. Go raise 1.8 or go raise $2 million, you know, and then we'll see. I mean, what do you take from that for people who are newer leaders? Like, why was that a good call? I think it was really important for them to understand that if they raised this money, then the trustees would have some skin in the game. So Mm -hmm. it was really important for them to understand that if they raised this money, the trustees of the museum would embrace them, would fully embrace them and would have some skin in the game. That was super important. The other was that you wanted to set a challenge that was aggressive, but not impossible. We wanted to be able to meet that challenge. He didn't say, well, in order to do this, you have to raise $100 million for an endowment, then we're going to figure it out. You know, He wanted this to be successful, but he also didn't want to set the sights too low. So it was a very it was a very clever way of him going about this. He was a remarkable leader. He was a remarkable fundraiser. He was I always laughed that every time Peter opened his mouth, it, like vision just came pouring out of his mouth all of the time. It was all about vision all of the time. Well, let's go down that path. You and I have talked a lot about, and, and I think it's sort of uh, core to what you all do with the creative fundraising advisors, is this idea that money follows vision. So talk to me about that. Like, what does that mean for you? What are some examples of, you know, you just mentioned going through the the art of the Islamic world, 
but what does that really mean? Like money follows vision. I can give you lots of examples of that. I think the best one, a really good one to talk about is St. John's College, which has a campus in Santa Fe and also a campus in Annapolis, Maryland. And they called us because they wanted to do this big campaign, $300 million, and they needed counsel on that campaign. So I went actually to Annapolis to um, meet the president, their presidents of each campus. And I went to Annapolis to meet the president. And he basically said to me, St. John's College is the third oldest college in the United States. We have this very specific curriculum. And for those of you of who's listening don't don't know this, but St. John's is a quote unquote, it's the ultimate kind of great books school and and there are no majors and you go to St. John's and over the course of four year, years, you read about 200 books. You read Greek in the original Greek, you read French in the original French, you, it, it's all about original source materials. And I mean, it's a really special place, but they said, we don't want anything to change. So we just need $300 million to do exactly what we're going to do. And I was like, yeah, campaigns don't really work that way. Right. Like the, like the, because we've always done it that way, way campaign doesn't really work, you know, because it's not visionary, you know, and you've actually been trying this and it hasn't been working. And I, I was literally, and I rarely do this, but I was literally kind of packing up my notebook and thinking, yeah, you need to find someone else to do this because it, this doesn't sound like the right formula for success for me. If, if they're not looking, cause they also said, we're not going to build any buildings. We're not going to, you know, we literally just need need money to keep doing what we're doing. So as I'm packing up my notebook and whatnot and thinking about how I'm going to get out of this gracefully, he said, oh, and just one other thing, we're thinking about reducing our tuition by 50%. And I looked at him and I said, excuse me. And he said, our tuition is way too high. We're at $54,000 a year and, and people just can't afford that. So we're thinking about cutting that by 50%. And I literally sat down again and opened my notebook and I said, okay, let's talk about that. There's your vision. He said, what do you mean? And I said, if you can make this very special education affordable and accessible to more people, then let's do that through philanthropy. Let's power that through philanthropy. That kernel of an idea like then led to an entire campaign that was about making the St. John's education affordable and accessible. In that, I like, I really hear like, find the pain point, right? Yeah. Like the pain point is students come out of a four year education and they're in $100,000 in debt. Not so, only that, it's it, it, it even starts way before that. A parent and a junior or senior in college go onto the St. John's website and they see it, the what they call the sticker price, you know, the published tuition of $54,000, and they literally just close the browser. Like, no, right. can't even consider that. You know, people don't understand the intricacies of college tuition and, you know, financial aid. And, and so they don't even get past that to even consider St. John's as an option. They were very married to this idea that a prestigious education needs to come with a prestigious price. So they were very afraid that lowering their tuition would somehow diminish their level of prestige or the alumni to think like the people were now getting a discounted tuition. What I said is, is so great. Let's do a feasibility study around this vision, lowering your tuition by 50%. And we're going to test this idea with, and we interviewed probably 50 alumni one-on-one about this idea. And every single one came back and said, amazing idea. 50% is not enough. This education could be free. And 
so that really buoyed the trustees of St. John's and the, and the president and, and whatnot to, to think this was a really good idea. What the other great thing was is that their biggest donor had already told them that he was going to sit out this campaign. He's like, you know, I just I'm not interested in pouring more money into this college that isn't doing anything to sort of fix their problems. He said, I'm going to sit this one out. After we presented him with this big idea of cutting the tuition in half and making it more affordable and, and accessible and and showed him how by doing this would also mean that they could still balance their or balance their budgets and, and whatnot, he stepped forward with a $50 million commitment to that campaign mm-hmm. and, he, and he made it a challenge grant. And he said, if you can match this dollar for dollar, up to $50 million, I'm in. So that completely changed the trajectory of that campaign. And that's so when I talk about money following vision, that's what I'm talking about. It's not a simple thing, like let's c- cut the tuition in half. But what no, makes that? No, it was very complex. Actually. Right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what makes that like a vision and not a tactic? It's a great question because the tactic was the tuition reset, the vision was more affordable and accessible. That this unique St. John's education needs to be available for anybody who seeks it, you know? And that St. John's education is not for everybody. And Johnny's actually come out knowing, and, and there's a lot of evidence of this, that Johnny can do anything. Mm-hmm. Because of that education, they can literally go do anything. And it's that critical thinking in it, but it's not for everybody, right? right. But they wanted to make sure that the people for who for who that education is appropriate could access that education. And then as a result, actually maybe make a slight difference in the world in terms of civil discourse and in terms of what they can then carry out into the world. So that was the vision. The mm-hmm. tactic was cutting the tuition. But mm-hmm. the vision was how do we how do we make more Johnnies, basically? But it's it's a very good question because I think that, you know, when we do strategic planning with organizations, we always start with mission, vision, value, and goals. And the hardest part for an organization is to get that vision ready. It's the hardest part. And it's the part that requires the most wordsmithing. It's, but it's hard. It's not easy. I, I love this thing that you talk about that's like, um, I mean, that's it's sort of out in, in the world, but you and I have talked about it too, of, um, of like getting to your why, yep. you know, articulating your North Star. And I think the St. John's example is a really good one because it's sort of like, we want to reduce tuition by half. Okay, but why? Right. You know, and right. so so that's sort of interesting. T- tell me when you work with directors, you know, really well established or new directors, <clears throat> um, because you really you really do work mostly in the nonprofit world. Um, Entirely. Yep. Yep. I mean, how do you literally work with them when they're starting now in a big capital campaign? You know, St. John's three hundred million dollars, right? I mean, how do you get them from we want to cut tuition in half to we want to make more Johnnies who can change the world? We want to take away this pain point and make it accessible for, you know, any any person who thinks they could be a, a, a Johnny. We want that to be yep. possible for them. Like, how do you get someone f- to their why? Imagine you're a museum director or you're running any nonprofit. You have these like quotidian responsibilities, you know, and every day you're looking at like, how can I make sure that my development director is, you know, making their annual fund goals and blah, blah, blah. And they have all of this. And so they, on a day-to-day basis, directors don't generally sort of float up to 30,000 feet. They're on a day-to-day basis, pretty close to the ground. 
right? And they're kind of running that organization and all of that. And so what my job is, is to come in and help them to lift their sights to the horizon. Like stop looking at the ground, but let's look at the horizon. Like, I'll, I'll give you another example of before I do that, let me also say that so many times people come to us and they say they want us to solve this problem for them. Like we can't raise enough money or financial stability should come about as a part of a really good strategic plan, but it shouldn't be a part of your strategy. The thing that we have to work with them on is like to stop getting them to think about like our problems are your problems. So we're going to make our problem your problem. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. We had this, an organization come to us, not an arts organization, it's an environmental organization. And they came to us and they said, we've been getting this quarter of a million dollar grant for years and years and years from this foundation. And it's a really important part of our operating budget. And they've informed us that they're closing down their river program and we're losing this quarter of a million dollars. So mm -hmm. we need you to help us replace that quarter of a million dollars. It's like, wow, well, that's really making your problem your donor's problem. Like that's, why is that your donor's problem? Like that's not visionary. And so <clears throat> I said, I think we need to actually design a bigger campaign around replacing this money and that that money is going to be replaced as a part of a vision for a bigger campaign. What a lot of people don't understand is that the Mississippi River in Minnesota, which is where it originates, is the most environmentally threatened waterway in the United States. It is the mm -hmm. dirtiest waterway in the United States. For the principal reason for that is all the farming. All of that nitrogen runoff from the farms, from the fertilizers on the farms has polluted the river to a degree where it's it's unsafe. And I said, what about if we do a campaign that's all about making the river clean and safe? Like, let's just make a really big vision that by the year 20-something, the Mississippi River will be delisted from the most unsafe waterway in the United States. And they, it, it was like their mind was blown. Did um, you get like pushback from that? I mean, where did you get like, oh, no, we can't make that our vi That's not really where we need to go. Like that's well, we just I, need to fix I did this a little, little bit. Thing. So we always put together a committee of the board to because it's really important to get like staff and board alignment around this. But it's also really important for the staff to hear from like volunteers about this. And they got so excited about this vision that everyone's now completely piled on to that mm -hmm. and understands that that this is not just about solving this line item problem in their budget. This is about transforming the organization. And I say this all the time. If you're going to raise a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million, whatever the number is, if at the end of that campaign, you are not transformed as an organization, then we haven't done our jobs because mm -hmm. these are transformational moments, right? At the end of $10 million, you have to look different, feel different, be different, interact with the world differently. It can't just be, we're going to raise $10 million and then not do anything. A lot of my job, Meredith, truly, a lot of my job is to like have these, what I call dream along with me conversations. Like, mm -hmm. let's really dream here. Let's, and I literally asked them like, okay, it's five years from now. It's six years from now. You have a hundred million dollars in the bank that you didn't have five years ago. You know, mm -hmm. what does it look like? What does it look like to come to work? What can you do today that you couldn't do five years ago because you have this money in the bank? Like, what does your staff look like? What do you look like? How do you interact with the world? And I, and that's how I get them to begin that vision conversation. Like, mm -hmm. let's just look at what this organization looks like with having raised this kind of money. That's yeah. where we start. And sometimes I literally have them do two columns, 2020, 2025. You know, what are you doing five years around that you can't do today? How many you, people you... are you serving? What's your staff look like? What's your board look like? Yeah. You know, all of that. 
When you do that exercise, do you do you find that you more often get a director who in the 2025 column is like, oh, that's going to be tough to get there? Or do they always undershoot? They always undershoot. <laughs> they, gen- they generally undershoot. We all need to dream bigger. <laughs> we all need to dream bigger. Yeah. I have a colleague who's another consultant who's a, a mentor of mine, and he always used to say, there's more money out there than there are big ideas. I totally believe that. I totally believe that too. People love big ideas. Yeah. People love big, bold, audacious ideas. And it's the director's job then to articulate that vision, right? Yeah. But then it's also his or her job to get alignment behind that vision, get staff alignment, get board alignment, and to get alignment behind that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I almost think that there's, there's this thing that I don't I don't know that I mean it's not new, unique to leaders by any means right it's everybody you almost hesitate to put the giant thing in the 2025 column because of fear because you're like yeah. I'm not going to be able to sell this to the board to the staff to myself really to like you know whatever and we do that in all in in all of I mean I know I do that in personal projects and in in things where there's this hesitation to dream big because you're afraid that you're setting yourself up for failure, right? Yeah. And it's also people are way more comfortable with incremental change rather mm-hmm. than really transformational change. They're way more sure. comfortable with an incremental change because that's where their comfort zone is, right? Well, sure. In- and I think because we've all been through, we you can feel inc- incremental change, but it's it's harder to feel full on transformational change. Yeah. And it's interesting because one of the things, it's a, I have this dumb little saying that I use all the time, which is change does not happen within comfort zones. Mm. Got to get a little uncomfortable. Uh, it's why when we also do strategic planning, getting to the strategic plan, we involve the board, we involve the staff, we involve a strategic planning committee that is board and staff. And we literally spend time taking the strategic plan back and forth to these groups in order to get alignment around all of this. See, that's really interesting to me because that's where I feel in my sort of peer group where organizations misstep is this idea of like, sure, you have a vision and you have, um, and you, you, you've gotten to your why, you know what your North star is, but then a leader might misstep by not communicating it well enough to their staff so there's no staff buy-in or the board just shoots it down because it's maybe not presented in a way that they feel brought in to it, right? You know, even I think it's particularly nonprofits that work with um, communities that, that were maybe they're like the example that we were talking about earlier with, with Houston, if that hadn't been handled in a way that invited the greater community into the conversation, then that vision wouldn't have necessarily gotten as far as it did, right? Like Correct. getting yep. that buy-in, whatever yep. community it is. So what process do you sort of find in your work that really leads to organization-wide buy-in when the why or that North Star is like, this? we're, we're about to go on a ride. Like this right. is not like everybody's, you know, the, the departments are going to change slightly. This is like, we're, we're really, we're changing. Truly, part of this is a governance issue, because it really is the the board the job of the board 
to approve a strategic plan for the organization. That is a that is good governance. And mm-hmm. so in doing so, it's the board who approves the mission, vision, values, and goals for the organization. They don't get involved in what we call operationalizing that plan. That's strategies and tactics. That's not the big sort of mission, vision, value, and goals. But when, for example, we're, an organization comes to us initially and they have these ideas and, and whatnot, what we often, sometimes our first job with them is that we take all these ideas, say, for the, the director has, for example, and then we do a board visioning session. Mm-hmm. And we do it. It's a really intense board kind of listening session. We break them out into small groups. And so we, and, and we bring the board together to have this visioning session. Um, and the director, of course, is there. And it's really important that the board be engaged in that process. Because in, in being engaged in that process, then the director and the board are in alignment about that. So there's going to be no conflict there. And then mm-hmm. it's the director's job to share that vision with the staff. So everybody is in alignment. It's also often really important for the staff to be involved in that visioning process as well. Do you have any good examples of where you've worked with a, a group where the, the director has communicated a vision really well to their staff? Like, what does that process look like? Because I've certainly been in, I've certainly been in organizations where it's like, here's, here's what we are. Here's what we do. Go do it. Bye-bye. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So which um, doesn't necessarily you get that then you just get, you know, heels dug in and and you, you again, you don't have that buy in. So like what tell us what what it should look like. It's just all about transparency. Right. So that's why, for example, when we're doing a strategic planning process and we're getting everybody into alignment around mission and vision, we have full staff sessions or if it's a big staff, we'll break the staff into small groups and we literally have them like react to a vision that has been articulated and tell us what they think of that. And we then take that back to the director and the strategic planning committee and say, this is what the staff is saying. You know, yeah. So what we allow for and what we actually become then is we become a catalyst for these dialogues to happen that are a safe place for people to have dialogue. Because the other thing is, is that um, it's really who about who has power, right? And so what we want to do is we want to equalize that power. I mean, to me, this like all boils down to just like listening. Totally. A hundred percent. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause I think that inherent in this idea of just listening, staff listening to, to their director, directors listening to staff, directors listening to boards, boards listening to staff, this whole like kind of circular thing. It, it feels more like it's about trust than anything else. It is about trust. I mean, at the end of the day too, let me also just say at the end of the day, Everyone needs to be in alignment, and then and then the director really becomes the steward of that vision, becomes mm-hmm. the person who is stewarding that vision. Um, but you're right; it is about trust, and it is it is about a staff understanding, for example, that the board has their best interest in mind, and it's it's also really a board understanding why this staff comes to work every day, and that they want to work towards a big vision and a north star, and they want to have purpose. When we begin a strategic planning process, we're very clear that the strategic plan is going to become about their work. It's not the work that they do after they're done with their jobs. So it's really important that they become very invested in what the North Star is as well, what that vision is as well. Wait, what do you mean by that? When we do a strategic plan, we make it clear to them that it's about their work, not what they do after work. How many times have you been through a strategic planning process where then the strategic plan gets put on a shelf, maybe every month, maybe every two months, like the staff strategic planning task force comes back together and goes, 
oh my gosh, where are we on the plan? What do we have to do to get the plan? Because the consultants are coming and we got to like make sure that all of this stuff is done and blah, blah, blah. And, and it becomes like the work after they're doing their work. What we'd rather see is this now becomes your work. This is what you're going to do every day. You know what it's I mean? It's like you're tapping into it daily. You're not looking at it as a report after the fact. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say you have a great strategic plan. You have a director who has communicated that vision and the strategic plan to support it. And you have all things are sort of in alignment. What do you recommend for people to maintain momentum? I think you can be on a path where you feel really good about the path and then you get a curveball from someone who says, do this program because I'm going to give you, you know, a million dollars to do this program or do this program because this new thing is popping up or this opportunity is popping up. I guess what I'm trying to get at is you have a North Star for a reason and yep. sure your your path is going to like wind a little bit towards that North Star, but what is the tactic to maintain the the steps towards the North Star, you know, instead of getting taken off that path? My answer to that would be that we have a strategic plan for a reason, and that is so that we can put everything through the lens of that plan. If someone comes along and says, I want to give you a million dollars to do this, it's possible to put that through the lens of the plan and say, does this actually meet the objectives? Does this actually keep us on our path? Or does this mm -hmm. distract us from our path? Right. So, and that's where I think the power of the strategic plan is, is it can help an organization stay really focused on what they want to do. What do you think is more important, having the board that's going to get you to the right strategic plan, so board building first, or having the personal vision to help build the board? I think it's the personal vision. You need to have the personal vision to help create the board to then create the best path forward. I think so. So, so it's, it's, they, they really aren't in tandem. There are, you would say one comes before the other. Yep. So I want to switch gears just a little bit. I have two sure. kind of questions. We're really kind of, you know, this has been such a great conversation. I think there's so much, there's so much in this. That's really I hope, fascinating. I hope so. I want to talk, I mean, right now we're recording in November. So this is, you know, our listeners are probably catching this later than that, obviously, but I, but the circumstances are still the same. We're in this like K-shaped recovery. The pandemic is not going anywhere. The identity politics are not going anywhere. The sort of polarization, as much as we want to think that something's going to be subdued, like I don't see that happening, <laughs> you no, know. Um, talk to me about how you see philanthropy kind of leading some of these changes that we're facing and and what you see happening because of these the sort of ongoing crisis management that's happening that other organizations are having to do how does that impact philanthropy and then like how does that contrast with like 2008 like 2008 was a huge crisis you know that definitely impacted nonprofits in particular but you know I don't know to the scale of, you know, one in three museums potentially closing, you know, we're in a different kind of world now. So it was a different economic crisis because the 2008 economic crisis actually really hurt the people at the top of the food chain who have that potential to continue to keep organizations healthy. Whereas this crisis is really hurting people at the bottom of the food chain. Mm -hmm. Top of the food chain is, as you said, in a K-shaped recovery, they're fine. 
you know, this is why this this these two crises actually have disproportionately affected people of color so dramatically. And when you think about, oh, we could go on and on about homeschooling and access to Wi-Fi and, you know, all of that, which is not available in certain communities. This is what I've said to a lot of our clients. No one organization is going to solve the problem of systematic racism and racial inequity and all of that on our own. No one organization has the power to be able to do that, but we all have to play our part. And if, for example, in the context of a big campaign, if you're not doing your part to leverage those dollars to make these changes, then you're missing the mark. Then you're missing the moment, you know? And so I think it's incumbent upon organizations to articulate how they can be a part of the solution. And then it's also incumbent upon organizations to talk to their biggest supporters, investors, stakeholders, whatever you want to call it, and explain to them how their support can help leverage and solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Every organization has to take their part. None of us are going to do it on their own. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but it's also something that's coming up for me. Is I like to say this when I, in, in like the communications context when I'm working with with our team is like not everything has to do everything, right? No, right, exactly. Not, and and also like not every program has to address every issue or whatever. And I think especially right now when there are so many pain points to like address through work in the cultural nonprofit realm, you know, we're not, we're not a food bank. So it's not like that's going to be our thing. Like we're cultural nonprofits have this malleability where you could be addressing a lot of different things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so how are you advising people, especially who people who are in a, a moment of trying to either maintain or raise the bar in what they're raising um, in fundraising? How do you communicate that sort of a- address how your organization is solving some of these problems, but don't change your organization to solve problems that are not your organization's responsibility? That's a really good point. I got I, I to think about that. Um, sure. And, and some of those changes can be small changes, you know, mm-hmm. some of it, some of it can be being more thoughtful about programming, being more yeah. thoughtful about, sometimes it's just a matter of like being more thoughtful, right? Period. <laughs> Period. Yeah. <laughs>